Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge with Professor Ali Ansari and me, Suzanne Rain. Today we're talking about taking difficult decisions because it occurred to us that there's quite a lot of deciding that our leaders are being expected to do and it's difficult. So we've got the Right Honourable Charles Clark with us. Charles should be known to many of you as the leader of the Baltic Geopolitics Programme at the Centre for Geopolitics. But before that, he had a very illustrious political career, was a member of parliament from 1997 to 2010 in the Labour government. He was Education Secretary from 2002 to 2004 and Home Secretary from December 2004 to May 2006. Ali, you're going to ask the first question. I am. Well, Charles, it's a re- really, really great pleasure to have you here. You, so you were obviously Home Secretary at the time of the 7-7 attacks in 2005, and I'm sort of intrigued to know, how did you first learn about the attacks? Well, firstly, can I thank you both for inviting me onto this podcast? You've got a great series, and I'm honoured to be uh, part of this one. You can come again. <laughs> I can come again. Okay, I'll take you up on that, Suzanne. Um, we were sitting in the Cabinet that morning of the 7th of July, John Prescott was chairing the cabinet because Tony Blair was at the G7 summit, which was taking place obviously in Scotland. So John was chairing the cabinet. And while the meeting was taking place, I got a a paper pushed in saying there'd been some kind of power outing or a big problem on the tube system, and it wasn't then known what it was. And then very shortly afterwards, a further piece of paper came in saying that it was in fact an explosion. Uh, and there had been the attacks. Uh, it wasn't known where they w- came from, how far they extended, whether they might be repeated or whatever. So I asked John Prescott to uh, stop the cabinet meeting, and we reconvened about 20 minutes later down in the Cobra meeting room next door to the cabinet room in the cabinet offices, cabinet office briefing room A, it's called, and it was the place where crises were dealt with. I'd had two or three other issues in that room previously. For example, hijacked airplanes coming in uh, to Stansted Airport and how we dealt with them. Uh, But I uh, immediately chaired that meeting and uh, some of the cabinet who aren't normally members of COBRA just came down to the committee because they're interested to see what was going on, unsurprisingly. What you have there is a committee which includes the major security services, the intelligence services, the various government departments involved, And uh, the most important thing was to get an account of what really was going on, uh, which is more difficult than it may sound. Uh, For example, one of my cabinet colleagues said at the meeting that she thought there were eight different explosions around London. And the reason was the ambulance service was reporting smoke coming out of both ends, uh, two stations when there'd been a, um, a, a tube attack in the middle. Anyway, Andy Heyman from the police gave a very coherent account and we were able to move forward. Uh, The main decisions were very easy to take in that situation because we had had a number of preparations for this kind of potential attack in order to work out who was in command and how that worked. And that worked out throughout the day. There is a process called Gold Command where there is an individual who's in command, and I emphasize an individual, who has to decide what to do. That's not the Home Secretary, it's not the Prime Minister, it's the people who uh, lead the security services themselves and the particularly the police. 
So there were a set of uh, actions that had to be taken to follow up on those. The biggest immediate outstanding decision that I had to take was a decision whether we closed down the whole London Underground system or not. The problem was that if you closed down the whole London Underground system, everybody would be left in the middle of London, not able to get home. And what would that mean? Would it lead to civil disorder and so on uh, as people were wandering around? But if you kept it open and there was a second subsequent attack, then would we be justifiably criticised for having let people go onto tubes and buses and whether there might be a second attack? There had been in Madrid uh, a few months before one of these situations with a second attack, and obviously we didn't know if there was going to be a second attack or not. In fact, the UK second attack came a fortnight later, with the unsuccessful attack on 21st of July. But Alistair Darling, the Transport Secretary, and I had to decide whether we did close the underground system down or not, and we decided not to. In fact, I was talking to Alistair about it the other day, and we both agreed that that had been the correct decision as it turned out, but it was a decision that had to be taken. I think, Ali, the main point I'd emphasize is that there'd been very, very substantial preparation to deal with an attack of this kind, and you saw that manifested in things like the press conference in the early afternoon, where all the command services were together and giving us a spirit of confidence to the country. I had to decide what to say in my statement to the country, which I did on from the mic outside 10 Downing Street. Very, very important to maintain public confidence, essentially, that we'd got the thing under control. The most dangerous thing in this kind of situation is a more anarchic situation emerging. And then, of course, I had to make a statement to Parliament to explain what we were doing and how we were dealing with the various issues that came along. I won't go into more detail now because I'm eating up too much of your time. But there was a process there that happened, and I would contrast it with others. I had very interesting conversations with the Americans after the hurricane in New Orleans, where there was complete confusion between the state governor, the Louisiana governor, the federal government, and the mayor of New Orleans, all with their different forces, all working in a way that led to chaos in those circumstances. Or a different example, when we had a bank closure, we hadn't rehearsed uh, the relationship between number 11, number 10, the Bank of England, the Financial Conduct Authority. So when that happened in early 2008, there had been no preparations of that. It took about three days to take the decision about what you actually did to bail out the banks in those circumstances. So my main conclusion from this is prepare for disasters and work out mm. how you deal with them. Charles, you'll find me agreeing with you <laughs> a billion percent on that one. <laughs> on that one. I wanted to come back and focus on the sort of point that you're talking about, which is one of the things that strikes me always in a crisis. People want to know who's done it, but also, more importantly, they want to know what's going to happen next. And in the case of an attack, that question is, is it, has it finished or is it still ongoing? And that's really difficult because by definition, if you knew about it, you would have stopped it. So, so, so you are at the lowest point of understanding if there's been a surprise terrorist attack. And that changes the way that everybody behaves as well, because people are, are responding to adrenaline in, in different ways. So I wondered if you described really well then how you and Alistair Darling, the decision that you had to take, which is do we close down London Transport Network or not? And that decision obviously depended on the answer to the question, what do we think is going to happen next? Do we think that a more attack is out there? What was the process by which 
you received that advice or weighed up those options? Well, it's a very good question, and I agree with the preliminaries that you've just taken. The truth was we didn't know. I, of course, immediately after that COBRA meeting I described, went straight over to security services to try and establish what our level of knowledge of it was. Obviously, I didn't really need to do that because, as you know very well, Suzanne, the leaderships of those services were working like hell to try and understand the situation themselves about how this unexpected event had taken place. Uh, I did satisfy myself that it wasn't something we'd known about beforehand and hadn't acted on uh, at that early point. But they didn't have information about something else that might come because they didn't know what the network was that was launching the attack that we just had. And so when it came to the transport decision, we had various people around us, the British Transport Police, perhaps more than anybody, about the practicalities of closing down the system and how we would actually do it because it's not at all a straightforward thing to do to close the whole transport system of London down. And we got some information on that. But at the end of the day, I think Alistair and I simply had to decide on the basis of not having the information you thought we needed, Suzanne, you rightly thought we needed, and we thought we needed too, but we had to decide, well, which way do we go? Mm. And um, going back to the earlier conversation, I think indecisiveness would have been terrible. We could have said, we haven't got enough information yet, we'll meet again in two hours' time and ask the security services to come up with more information. Mm. But actually, that would simply have postponed the decision to no good effect. And I think one of the important things about taking decisions is to take decisions rather than kick it into the long grass. And there was a suggestion we could delay that decision, but we didn't think there was any real point in that because our information was so low that we couldn't see any merits that would come from delay. But at the end of the day, I'd have to say, Suzanne, I think it was very much on Anastasia's line instinct mm. how we felt about this. The best concrete example was Madrid, and I can't remember at this distance exactly what the I think it was both on the same day, I think was the case. And we did have information about that, but we didn't know if that was the plan of the uh, attack that had come this time. But we thought it would be better that way around. And um, Charles, obviously you know that I feel very strongly that there has to be room for instinct, particularly at these moments. There's just things that the computer's not going to give you the answer to. And, and this is a really good example of one of them. So you talked about making the public statement and clearly getting the tone right, the leadership in a crisis is the really important element, uh, especially if you are essentially trying to reassure a traumatised public. So when you're doing that public communication, again, what, what, what was the way that you approached it? Well, the first thing to say was that we immediately, after Cobra, I, ph I phoned Tony and Tony Blair and spoke to him in Glen Eagles. And uh, what I was keen to say to him, we'd got the situation under control. He didn't need to come down to London because I didn't know what was going on in the summit and whether he needed to be there or not. Um, but I wanted to give him the option of staying in Glen Eagles if the considerations he was dealing with meant that was more sensible. He actually was very clear immediately, which I would have expected from him, that he would come down to London immediately. So we had a second COBRA meeting early afternoon, which he chaired because he'd come down from Scotland by that time. Um, <clears throat> we decided, and he agreed, of course, that I should make a statement immediately because we couldn't allow grass to grow under our feet to tell people what the situation was. And I did it outside the door of 10 Downing Street. 
Uh, I wrote it myself um, because I, I, it was what I wanted to say. And your point, Suzanne, about the tone is a completely correct point. You have to have a, a tone which is open with people about what's happening and give confidence that we have ability to do that. So that's what I tried to do. So the first thing was to give a factual account, as far as we knew it, of what had actually happened that morning. Again, as I said earlier, even in the COVID, quite difficult to do because it was all going on very much in real time. But I felt for people watching, they needed to know that we at least knew what was happening. That included saying it was an unexpected attack, that we hadn't got secret information about this, that somehow we hadn't used properly. But then to say what was moving forward, and that the point there was to emphasise the competence of the, um, the public services, the security services and so on, and the fact that we did have the system under control and that we were watching the situation very intensely in case there were any further attack. And that was the tone I tried to convey outside uh, Downing Street. And I then had to do the same to Parliament a little bit later. And uh, I spoke to the Speaker first to tell him what we were going to say, Michael Martin, and then uh, unusually kept the House waiting, which I didn't like to do at all, because I wanted to get my wording completely right. But it's the same message. It is, this is what has happened. This is what we're doing to deal with it. And this is how we're dealing with potential future threats. I didn't go much into the condemnation of the people who'd done it and so on. I thought that was a fairly, I, I didn't consider myself, if I can say this, a Suella Browman type of Home Secretary, where you might think the first task is to slag off the uh, attackers rather than get on with protecting the people. But uh, I'm, that's a slightly unfair comment, and I can see, Suzanne, you might not approve of me having said that, but I nevertheless is what I thought, and I think is very important in these situations what the country wants is people who they think have got the show under control and can proceed in a proper way. And that was what I tried to convey. So just to recap, so basically, in a sense, you know, preparation and, you know, filter out the chaff and the ability to take a decision that is decisive, both in terms of, you know, the, the immediate group that you're leading effectively, but also to the wider public to give that reassurance that you have a measure of the situation. And I mean, I, I just want to contrast it with the sort of the... Uh, some of the stuff that we're discovering in the hearing about the COVID crisis, about the way in which the government responded to that. And in a sense, there was actually not preparation for the right type of pandemic, but also clearly a sense that was conveyed perhaps to the public as well and to the press, because presumably it's very important also to make sure the press buy into the narrative that you're establishing in a sense so they don't contradict you. But if you look at the recent COVID inquiry, it seems to be that basically people felt that they didn't, you know, they were grappling around in the dark, at least for a couple of weeks, to work out what on earth was going on. And they never really recaptured the narrative. I, I don't know, maybe that's unfair, but it, in a sense, it was always seen as something being done far too much on an ad hoc basis rather than a, a, in a, a, with a firm grip on events. Well, in general, Ali, I very much agree with you. I haven't studied the uh, transcripts of the COVID evidence so far, but uh, what I felt at the time uh, I, as Home Secretary, have been responsible for the subcommittee of the Cabinet that deals with emergencies of this kind. And uh, I had thought that we'd established a fairly good process for getting the scientific advice in and to see what you did in that mm -hmm. process. Um, it turns out, and Alan Johnson, who was also Home Secretary, talked about this subsequently, that some of the structure that we'd put in place had been dismantled because you need to actually invest in yeah. the people who are going to understand what's going on. The government scientific advisor is always a key figure. 
The most recent example of 477 of this coming into action was the road hauliers dispute. Uh, I wasn't Home Secretary at the time, but the government was in a right state about, because on a just-in-time system, you can empty all your supermarkets within 24 hours uh, if, if the system isn't in place. And uh, the government had no experience of that going back 30 years before. A similar example was the foot and mouth crisis in the early, I think it was about 2001, uh, where the, all the evidence had been lost. And the fact is, you've got to do those preparations. And the, what's the point of the preparations? The point of the preparations is to decide who decides, who's in charge. And Michael Churchoff, the National Security Advisor to George Bush, who I knew very well, talked to me very fluently about this in relation to the hurricane in, um, in New Orleans, because there was just running conflict between the governor of Louisiana and the president and the mayor of New Orleans about what should you do. Should you put dams here? Should you send support for them? People, these decisions have to be taken in a way that people have got confidence about the decisions. And a perpetual argument about what's the right decision doesn't help anywhere because it's almost always the case that no action, because there's argument to no agreement, is worse yeah. than an, an action, even if there could have been a better action, if, you, if I can put it like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But the virtue of 7-7 seven, seven from that point of view was the question of who was in charge on all these various points. There was a clear gold command structure, which did actually work as decisions were taken as to where resources should be allocated, how you should deal with particular problems and so on, rather than an ongoing argument. It seems, and again, I can't say I've studied this properly, that the arena bombing in Manchester recently, when the report came out of that, it appears that some of those lessons hadn't been learned in the last couple of years to the system. And there was a lot of criticism, particularly with the fire service, for the way in which it responded to that particular bombing. And I, again, I'm not in a position to comment mm -hmm. on the accuracy of that, but that was said at the time. Your point about the media is right, but of course the truth about dealing with the media is if you have a clear and coherent message, even at a time of national crisis, they will want to go with that rather than to be nitpicking on the edge. I mean, nitpicking comes in it's part of the job description further down the line. But at the moment of a national crisis, uh, national media don't behave like this. They simply want to get the facts. What is the case is if they feel they're not being told things, then immediately government is very vulnerable. That's why I gave priority in my very first statement to explaining as fully as I could in, in the course of four or five minutes what had actually happened. Because if there was anything there, to give a political analogy, I don't know if uh, either of you were supporters of Bill Clinton, but uh, James Carvin, his campaign manager, wore on the day at which he beat George Bush a uh, T-shirt saying, Speed Beat Bush. And his point about Speed Beat Bush is when anything comes out, you've got to get out very quickly and very accurately. If you don't get out quickly, the story runs away from you. Mm. If you don't get it right, then people attack your position because you've got it wrong. But the organizational requirement to get out quickly and accurately when some allegation is made or some attack is made is very tough because it's very easy to get out quickly and say, this is a load of nonsense, and then blow me, actually it turned out to be true in some way because you weren't accurate, or to delay and leave a question just going on for a long time uh, with no stamp on it. So I've always believed in speed beat Bush, and I think it's a key thing for taking decisions in all spheres of life.
Charles, can I come in on that, the, the, the speed versus accuracy? Because at a time of a terrorist attack, obviously that's really hard to get right. And we saw that particularly with the media coverage of the bombing, let's call it, of the Al-Ahli hospital in Gaza a couple of weeks ago, where essentially the media it fell into a trap of reporting what everyone was reporting. And I found, certainly when I was trying to do some terrorism analysis, that the one of the things that, that we had to be really clear on from the beginning is you can't just pretend that all the other narratives aren't out there. You have to address and discount them in order to control the narrative yourself. So I always used to say when I was briefing, you will have heard the following rumors that there are 25 attackers, that there are four more people with bombs, that are this. We have, you know, and then I say, we have nothing to show that any of this is true. Because unless you do that at the beginning, you say your little bit, and then someone else puts up their hand and says, oh no, I heard there were 15 people, and then you lose it again. So that kind of control of the narrative without actually knowing the facts is really hard. And I just reflecting on that, and it links into Ali's point about the COVID inquiry in a way, is, is that what all of the, I think that what all of these things demonstrate is that you maximize your chances of doing that if you invest in the analysis and assessment that, that, that underpins the decision making. And I've just been reading my chance for something else. Uh, Lord Butler's review of the intelligence on weapons of mass destruction, which was produced in 2004. And one of the recommend, well, one of the criticisms stroke recommendations that he made was that the resources of the assessment staff, which is a tiny little team in the cabinet office, are very slight in relation to those of the collecting agencies. And that the, for the most part, they're made up of officials on short-term secondments. And actually the assessment staff, it doesn't even have its own budget. It's paid for through the Ministry of Defense. And I think in, in 20 years since that, that issue, that issue of investing in the assessment and analysis as opposed to the, the decision-making in a way, the policy, hasn't been addressed at all because it's never sexy to say what we want to do is invest in having a bigger team of analysts to understand health threats, having a bigger team of analysts to understand really how supply chains work. It's difficult to make that argument. And yet, surely, if you want to take good decisions, that's where you should put your money. I completely agree with you, and I agree with what you said earlier. The Israeli, uh, the Gaza hospital example is an absolutely excellent one. Another one I'd give you is the destruction of the Nord Stream mm. pipeline between Russia and Germany, where to this day, I saw the other day, there was another report that it was a deranged Ukrainian individual who'd done it. But it's been through, the CIA did it, Russia did it, whatever. In all of these questions, which are very major on, on what decisions follow, you have to rest on the best possible knowledge and understanding of the facts. And that relates to the media discussion as well, because unless the political leaderships are ready to do that, rather than engage in speculations, which may very well be false, and that isn't always the case, I have to say, I would criticise Trump in that regard, for example, that's very problematic, but it also requires, as you say, Suzanne, to have a serious investment in the acquisition of intelligence and then its analysis properly. I think it's both acquisition and analysis, actually. Gordon Brown, to give him credit, something you'll not often hear me say, agreed to uh, put much more money into the security services post-77 so that they had more resources. Because the issue that they have the whole time, of course, is you've got a 1,000 people or whatever, 10,000 people you might be looking at, 
how many do you decide to look at? And that principally depends on the resources you have at your disposal. And then you've got the second point, uh, Suzanne, which you rightly make, which is how do you analyze what you do collect and what weight do you give to various things? And I think this is a very important thing to be strengthened. Unfortunately, the era of austerity that may have been economically justified after 2010 allowed all kinds of things that were seen as marginal to get chopped out and in all kinds of areas, and this was one of them. And so there were many of the things cut out in this phase, which I think turned out to be a mistake, And because it's easier to cut something out than to try and make yourself more efficient. Charles, can I broaden it a little bit, just to sort of ask in, in a sort of a wider uh, a wider scope, what you think makes a good decision maker, in a sense, and what do you think enables good decision making? I mean, I moving away even just from the political sphere, even in any sort of management or you know, business or others, you know, you often find that there are certain environments that encourage people to take, you know, decisions and others that don't really. I mean, that, that um, you know, I think we've all encountered bureaucracies that don't seem to want to make decisions. What do you think helps that along? What do you think enhances that? And, and also on the other side, diminishes it, I should say. Well, I, firstly, I think the leadership, whether official, permanent secretaries or, or whoever, or political, have to be very open. Uh, they have to let everybody be ready to speak and put their tuppany worth in. Uh, there's a problem of groupthink. You know, gold standard was a classic example uh, in the 1920s uh, the, of what's the right thing. What that get, it gets established in a structure, which is then second problem, hierarchical, where only the leader can speak uh, about it and everybody else has to be quiet. Then that absolutely makes it very difficult to make a proper assessment of what's really going on. So I think my first requirement is readiness to listen, ready to let people um, put their tuppany worth in, uh, understand what they're doing. And there are a lot of people, really, who don't do that. I mean, there are a lot of people who are so confident they know it all that they actually don't allow other people to come in and direct it. Uh, the second uh, quality is the recognition of timescales, uh, i.e., that delay is not your friend. There are very, very few decisions in my experience which benefit from putting them off, uh, but it's very easy for them to be put off. Though it's too difficult, we'll put it in the too difficult box, leave it for another day, really means it doesn't get solved. And I think if I look at politicians I've known of all parties, there is uh, a significant variation in people's ability to take a decision and then move on as opposed to keep worrying about what is the right decision to take. You can always make the case that the decision we're going to take has to be the right decision. That means we need more intelligence, more reports, more input before we take that decision. That's a very rational-sounding thing to say. But actually, the consequence of it is that you don't take decisions, and that becomes a worse position. Um, I don't think it's all about research. I mean, there is a general quite interesting issue about the relationship between universities and researchers and government decision-makers. And uh, I think university researchers are often in the same groupthink approach as governments are. And I've been shocked, actually, since working close with universities, how closed-minded uh, many so-called open-minded academics actually are. But that's true of politicians as well, so I can't throw stones too aggressively in that regard. But you've got to have a systematic understanding of what the risks might be and a real consideration of what are your tools to deal with those risks uh, when they come along. And that's not often the case. And I suppose the final thing is I think the drift, which I think we've seen really only over the last 10 years towards 24-7 media 
and media narratives dominating the conduct of politics and government is very, very dangerous. And I think that politicians who go along with that, I think it's even more dangerous. You need your prime minister, your home secretary, your president of America to fundamentally be located in reality rather than in the media mm -hmm. world. Now, obviously, they have to take account of the media world, but they must not be dominated by it. And if they take all the decisions driven entirely by the media world rather than by the reality, uh, then you'll get bad decisions. Charles, can I ask about so the you you mentioned just before we started recording that that one of the things that made it hard to take good decisions was multiple options, and the more options you have, the more information you have, the more the temptation to become paralysed by possibility. I suppose. Could you expand on that a little bit and how that felt in practice? You know? Well, paralysed by possibility is a very good phrase. Uh, you know the structure of government. The danger is that a minister is faced with seven different options, which civil servants have worked up, all of which can be coherently defended. Uh, it used to make me mad when they make their submission and not say in the bottom line, we recommend X. And too often they simply say the minister is asked to decide. Uh, I think they were lazy in not thinking through of these various options, what was the best from various points of view. I wasn't asking them to take the decision, but I was asking them to take the intellectual effort of really thinking through how a decision might be taken on those kinds of difficult questions. So my answer is that you have to reduce the range of options by establishing clearly what your bottom line constraints are, which will immediately remove some. There may, for example, be options which are about spending billions of pounds, but you haven't got billions of pounds, so you might as well eliminate that at the outset, and so on. And that's what you have to do. You, it's not usually going to be a choice simply between one or two options, but it is about how you solve the problems you've got rather than how the problems block you making progress in the direction that you want to go. So that takes us on to uh, your book that you wrote as a, I don't know, expression of frustration at the end of <laughs> 13 years of government, or something, the, the too difficult box. And I think, because I think, Charles, what you what you tried to do in this book is, as I understand, just, just explain why it is that a number of things that governments set out to deliver or change don't end up getting delivered or changed. And I think your reflections on and why that is would be useful and timely. Well, firstly, you simply have to decide clearly what it is you want to do. And that requires a lot more linguistic precision than we often get. For example, if you decide you want to reduce the burden of taxation, uh, the percentage of the GDP it goes in tax, that's a different ambition than deciding to reduce the income tax level. They're different things. And you have to decide what your option, what, what you're actually talking about, what you want to achieve. Or if you want to reduce crimes, there are all types of crimes, so how do you deal with it? The second thing is you have to decide, well, what are the means by which you might go about doing it? And again, I think there's been a serious problem sometimes in people simply saying, well, let's do it. Don't ask me how we do it. It's your job as the government, as the civil service, to give us the answers. But actually, you have to have an, be clear how you would set about achieving these things. Some of these things are relatively straightforward. For example, changing a tax rate. Others are far more complicated. And then thirdly, you have to look at how something would be implemented. Uh, the whole of the first part of uh, the Conservative government's health policies 
uh, in 2010 onwards got diverted because they hadn't thought through how you actually put into practice and implement the kinds of reforms that the then Secretary of State, Andrew Lansley, was advancing. And they all turned out to be very difficult. And all the big things do turn out to be difficult to implement. You can't just dictate it. Many politicians in particular, this is a, a, a failing of the political class, is you say that if you make a statement or give an interview in a newspaper, you've done it. But actually, as a whole process, green paper, white paper, legislation, reform legislation, implement it, and so on, which you have to go through to actually do something. Take the example Prime Minister is talking about today, uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, pulling the UK out of the European Convention on Human Rights. It's a slogan that none of the people who advocate it, which, by the way, I don't, none of the people who advocate it have set out what they would actually do. Some of them say, well, maybe we should have the British Bill of Rights. Uh, and then they, you ask them the question, what's the difference? What rights are going to be different in the British Bill of Rights of the European Convention on Human Rights? Answer comes there, none. Uh, so the battle is fought around a slogan like that, or even more dramatically stop the boats uh, about how you, quote, stop the boats. It's very straightforward, isn't it, to stop the boats. Uh, but actually, it isn't straightforward to stop the boats. And so you've got to work out how you implement it. And I think that's the key thing. Uh, Suzanne, you've got to have a process from what your ambition actually is. Is, for example, stop the boats your ambition? Or is your ambition to reduce migrate, illegal migration into Britain? They're different things. And you've got mm. to decide what your ambition actually is and then how you're going to set about doing it. And this is where, this is a little in parenthesis here, but this is where, Charles, I would come back to the thing I bang on about at every possible opportunity to the point of becoming really tiresome. But in order to do something against people smuggling, you have to understand how the entirety of that process yeah, works. Of and that's really hard because it's it's criminal, it's mm. vast. Sometimes it's really helping people who are desperate. Sometimes it isn't. So if you're going to try and turn around a system, you can't do it unless you actually understand how it's working at the moment. You could apply the same thing to sanctions on the Russian economy. For example, I was reading in the Financial Times today that... You know, basically, the EU has worked out that the Russians aren't selling, that they're selling their oil for far more than the price cap because they now have a dark fleet. They've got all sorts of people who are prepared to buy it, people, countries who are prepared to buy it without asking any questions. So, so not understanding the level of alternative economy in Russia meant we applied a whole series of financial sanctions, which are just ineffective for example. I mean, basically what you've got to do is you've got to have a solid appreciation of the problem you want to solve. Precisely. And both people trafficking and sanctions are excellent examples. Mm. Um, when I first started in the Home Office in 1999, drugs were the number one criminal target. And we were trying to push people trafficking up to be at least equal in status. But the whole of the system was focusing on drugs and what do you do about drugs with odd problems like different agencies of government had different measures of how you succeeded in tackling drugs and, and not. But I 100% agree about people trafficking. I saw a great deal of how it could be dealt with. It requires international cooperation, which isn't uh, easy to achieve. Uh, but the, I, I visited many areas where there'd been very big successes, and I still believe that is the core to tackling the illegal migration problem, if to really take out the people traffickers. But that requires, as you rightly say, Suzanne, having a real understanding, what does my glib phrase actually mean in terms of making that happen? And that basic work 
doesn't happen anything like as much as you would think that it needs to. And it applies in all areas of complicated policy like this. I get the impression that there must be some real sort of frictions that develop between the civil service and politicians, because in some cases, the politicians are demanding, you know, they're, they're sort of sloganeering in a way that civil servants simply cannot deliver on some of the things that they're I, I, sloganeering I, over. And, and, and on the other hand, perhaps you might be in a situation where, in some cases, as you were saying, you know, you have to sort of uh, reduce down the number of choices that a politician needs to, uh, for, for the decision that needs to be made. And in some cases, maybe that's not delivered on the other end. On the I other think side. a lot depends on the politician. Um, some mm. politicians flourish on sloganeering. Yeah. And um, I, I don't, at least I hope I'm not one of those. Uh, but that, that exists in Labour, Conservative, whatever. I'm not making a party political point. Uh, but I think the frustrations that exist uh, with between the civil service, my father was a permanent secretary, so I used to uh, talk to him about these kind of things when he was alive, and the civil service and the politicians are based entirely on the extent to which a particular politician will be a sloganeer rather mm -hmm. than a seeker out of solutions. And uh, that's that remains the case. Thank you, Charles. I think we're coming to the end of our time, really. But I think one of the things that I would like just to sort of pick up on that last point, what, what I was thinking about, what you made me think about when you were talking about that, was how often political decisions or decisions taken by politicians have to be balancing acts. So, you know, a big decision about planning, for example, not everyone's going to be happy. And that question about deciding for something or against something is always a difficult balancing act. And I suppose that that's, that's where your political belief in what the right thing to do is, is just as important as the information you can get, because the information is not going to tell you exactly what the outcome is going to be. I've not asked that very well, Charles. Do you understand what I'm... No, I'm very clear. The, the reason why technocratic governments often find it difficult to succeed is because there are lots of technocrats who think, well, the solution's obvious. You do the weighing out of the calculus and you come to a view. But actually, it all takes place within a political context, i.e. what's the impact of this decision, however, quotes, rational unquotes, on people and how they behave and people respond. And what the role of the politician is to try and take the proper hard-headed uh, hard assessment and say, in the political climate, what's the right thing for us to do? Uh, but that's where I come back to the importance of actually taking the decision. It's very easy to delay the decision, kick it into touch, and so on. And you can make the wrong decision. But I think that's really the issue. And as you rightly say, Suzanne, that requires a set of values, approaches. Uh, there, there, there are th things in British politics called election manifestos, which are supposed to give a guide to the way in which politicians of a particular government will take their decisions, uh, and often do. Uh, give a guide to the overall approach. But at the end of the day, you've got to take your decisions on the basis of the best possible information and being aware who is going to be affected by it. And by definition, your first point is important. Decisions that get to the level of senior levels of government are not easy. If they'd been easy, they would have been taken earlier, lower down. So by the time you get, say, to a prime minister, then there's a whole set of conflicting interests which he or she has to resolve at that point. Thank you, Charles. We our conflicting interest is that uh, we haven't got any time left. So. <laughs> time has caught up with us, which is a, which is a real tragedy in this respect. 
So thank you, Charles, very much for those insights. I mean, what an extraordinary career to have had, an extraordinary time to have been Home Secretary. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I find it totally fascinating to hear how you take decisions about closing down London when you when you simply don't know what's happening. So, so that's been really great to hear from you. Ali, do you want to say something No, no, else? I just want to thank you very much. I mean, as as always, I, I mean, I'd like to think that we might be able to uh, uh, invite you back at some stage in the very near future to continue this fascinating discussion, to be honest. I mean, it's been it's been really interesting. And I, I you know, it's one of the things that I think about, you know, this this notion of decision-making and the, the, you know, in what circumstances, you know, we situate ourselves to be able to make, you know, what we hope to be the right decision. I mean, it, it, it the, these things are, as you say, once it gets right up that chain, it's it, they, they they're not easy decisions to have to make. And it's of course what all the historians study. Absolutely, that's what history is. Yeah. So, and it's actually just people taking difficult decisions. So, Charles, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our listeners, and we'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.